So let us join our hearts together in prayer. The Lord is our portion, therefore we wait in hope for Him. The Lord, the Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the souls who seek Him. It is good that we should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Almighty God, we turn to You this morning because we trust You, because You have proven Yourself faithful again and again in our lives and in the lives of generation after generation of saints who have gone before us. We honor You and we bless Your name for the goodness that You pour so unstintingly into our lives. We pray this morning for Linda Safeli and for her family as they grieve the loss of their mother. We pray for Gail Klein as she recovers from her injuries. Lord, we pray for our church that we might operate as a body and come together around those who are in need. We do pray for the leadership of our church, for the session, for the many committees who are active in uh, the leadership of this church. We pray that you would fill those individuals and those committees with your Holy Spirit and with a vision for the future that you have in mind for us. We pray this morning for our country and for the world. We pray for those who are in need this morning and pray that we would rally around them and provide for their needs. We pray for those who are afraid this morning, for those who live in unsecure circumstances. We pray for your peace in this world. We pray that you would be the peace in the midst of strife for those who are caught. Father God, we offer these prayers in trust and in faith, and we offer them in the name of Jesus who taught us all to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Some of you have might have noticed that uh, the pews from the back of the sanctuary are not where they usually are. They're over in the barn uh, at this moment. The session uh, is looking at ways to rearrange the space of the church to meet the needs of the congregation. Uh, and they decided this week to remove those pews there so we could begin to look at that space and understand what the possibilities are of that. If you want to visit those pews, they're in the barn. I can let you in there anytime you like. Our second reading this, our first reading this, yeah, no, it's our second reading actually. Our second reading this morning is from John's Gospel, chapter 17. I will begin at verse 20 and run through the end of the chapter. This is Jesus praying to his Father. 
I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory, that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Eternal God, amid all of the changing words of our generation, we pray that you would speak your eternal word. Give us ears to hear, hearts to believe. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning I want to turn our attention to the third and the final part of what is called Jesus' high priestly prayer, which he prayed on the night of the Last Supper, less than 24 hours before he was crucified. Once this prayer is over, the drama of the passion of Christ will begin. This prayer contains the final words that Jesus spoke before he was sucked into the machinery of the temple hierarchy and the Roman government, machinery that would leave him broken and dead. And in this third part of Jesus' high priestly prayer, we hear Jesus praying for us. He's praying for the future church. He's already prayed for himself, and he's prayed for his disciples, the eleven who are gathered with him at the table there, and then he prays for us. In verse 20, we hear him say, I do not ask for these only, that is not for the disciples only, but for those who will believe in me through their word, through the disciples' word. That's us. Here at Huntington Valley Presbyterian Church, we believe in Jesus because of the words of the apostles. And in this prayer for us, for the church today, we see Jesus' vision of what the church is supposed to be in light of the word of the disciples. Almost 1,700 years ago, in the year 325, a group of church leaders from around the Christian world met in a small town in Turkey, what is today Turkey, and they wrote a confession of faith that we now call the Nicene Creed. In that creed, we find the line, we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. That one line from the Nicene Creed is deeply rooted in Scripture, and it is based almost entirely on Jesus' high priestly prayer. 
So this morning, I want us to look more closely at this prayer and see how it points us to one holy Catholic and apostolic church. First, the church is one. Now, the claim that the church is one might seem positively ironic in this, the 500th year of the Protestant Reformation. Beginning in 1517, the Protestant Reformation fractured the monolithic church in Western Europe, the Roman Catholic Church, and over time, that fracturing created a number of separate church families. Lutherans and Anglicans and Presbyterians and Baptists and Methodists and Quakers and Pentecostals, just to name the major families. And then each of those families of churches, as the years passed, gave birth to more and more smaller groups of Christians as Christians found themselves unable to agree on fine points of doctrine. To use our own denominational family as an example, at the moment there are about 13 different Presbyterian denominations in the United States alone. My first Presbyterian experience was at a Bible Presbyterian church in St. Louis, Missouri. The Bible Presbyterian church was founded in 1937 by a split from the Orthodox Presbyterian church, which itself had only been formed the year before in 1936 by a split from the Presbyterian church in the United States of America. The first Bible Presbyterian Church General Assembly was held just across the Delaware River in Collingswood, New Jersey. Carl McIntyre and Francis Schaeffer were among the first individuals ordained in that new denomination. Nineteen years later, in 1956, the Bible Presbyterian Church split into two new denominations, one called Bible Presbyterian Church Collingswood Synod and the other called Bible Presbyterian Church Columbus Synod. And then 23 years after that, in 1979, the Bible Presbyterian Church Collingswood Synod split with the American Presbyterian Church being the name of the departing denomination. Now, today... Notwithstanding its very grand name, the American Presbyterian Church has all of two congregations. One's in Bordentown, New Jersey, and the other one is in Westminster, Maryland. And believe it or not, the Bordentown congregation, or maybe I should say congregation, meets via Skype. If you visit their website... You can read all of the many points of doctrine which prevent them from being in communion with other Presbyterians and other Protestants and other Christians. Among the doctrinal distinctives of the American Presbyterian Church are, number one, strict teetotaling temperance. That means no booze at home and no wine in communion. Number two, no instruments in worship, so no organs or guitars in in the worship service. And number three, they only sing psalms, so no, no, no songs that aren't already in the Bible. And number four, they have a statement that the English Standard Version, which is the translation, uh, this one here, is a perversion of the Word of God. Four of the distinctives of the American Presbyterian Church. Fragmentation has been the lot of Christianity ever since the Reformation. And that's in spite of periodic church mergers and broad ecumenical movements among the mainline churches in the 20th century. When we look around us, it seems Christians are more divided than ever. 
So how can we say the church is one? Is it possible that Jesus' prayer has gone entirely unanswered? I think the question, or the answer to the questions is, yes, the church really is one, and no, Jesus' prayer did not go unanswered. I think the difficulty lies with our perspective. As people living inside of Christianity, to us... It looks as though the church is chopped up into mutually hostile subgroups, entirely unable to agree with each other. But to those who are outside of the church, the church can appear uniformly monolithic. C.S. Lewis, in his introduction to Anathanasius' On the Incarnation, talks about this very issue. He says, quote, We are all rightly distressed and ashamed also at the divisions of Christendom. But those who have always lived within the Christian fold may be too easily dispirited by them. They are bad, but people within the Christian fold do not know what it looks like from outside. Seen from there, what is left intact despite the divisions still appears, as it truly is, an immensely formidable unity. I know, for I saw it before I became a Christian. End quote. R.C. Sproul tells us that, tells us of C.S. Lewis that, quote, he read Thomas Aquinas, Martin Luther, Thomas Akempis, and others. And while he recognized that all of these people had certain nuances of difference between them, he couldn't get over the oneness that kept coming through their testimony as to the truth of the gospel. Thomas Aquinas, the great philosopher of the Roman Catholic Church, Martin Luther, the instigator of the Protestant Reformation, Thomas Akempis, the author of The Imitation of Christ, which is perhaps the best-known Christian devotional book of all times. All of these men are one in Christ. All of these men are joined by a common faith that affirms, among other things, that Jesus is the virgin-born Son of God who died on a cross to redeem sinners and that he will return in glory one day. While it can sometimes be fun for Baptists and Catholics and Presbyterians and Pentecostals to spar over their different doctrines, we should never lose sight of the fact that we are all part of the same church, that we are all disciples of Christ. The fine points of doctrine and style and geography which separate us are like a drop in a bucket when compared with what we hold in common, that Jesus is Lord. The church is one. Second, the church is holy. Now this claim that the church is holy might seem totally crazy in light of all of the misbehaving and squabbling that you see in ordinary congregations, in light of high-profile sex abuse scandals and megachurch financial shenanigans, even so, it is true, the church is holy. But the church is holy not because it's made up of holy people. Here at HVPC, we say it right in our mission statement, we are a fellowship of sinners. The church is holy not because of us. The church is holy because of Christ, who is the head of the church. In 1 Peter 2.9 we read, this is St. Peter talking to the church scattered throughout Asia. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The church is holy. In 1 Corinthians 1, 2, we read, and this is the Apostle Paul talking to a church, the church at Corinth, a church that was having all kinds of trouble. He writes to them, to the church of God at Corinth, a church that, uh, to, to the sanctified uh, in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. The church is holy. Yes, we are sinners, but we are also saints. Christians are set aside for a special purpose. We are sanctified in Christ Jesus, but our holiness, our sanctity is not our own, so there's no boasting. Our holiness, our sanctity is from Christ, and it has been given to us by grace, and it's been received in faith. In 2 Corinthians 5.16, the Apostle Paul says, from now on, we regard no one from the worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do, no, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. From the worldly point of view, we look at the church and we wag our heads in disappointment. How often the church has failed. How often the church has been guilty of gross sin. From the worldly point of view, we look at the people in the church and we cluck our tongue in disapproval. How often have pastors failed? How often have churchgoers failed? How often have we been guilty of every sin known plus the sin of hypocrisy on top of it all? But what the world sees and what God sees are not the same. What God sees are a bunch of helpless sinners redeemed by Jesus, clothed with His perfect righteousness, given a mission to accomplish in the world from God Himself. And so, yes, the church is holy. And while we pray and we work to constantly root out sin from our hearts and lives and our churches, we should still see ourselves and each other and the church at large the way God sees us, as the spotless bride of Christ. The church is holy. Third, the church is Catholic. This is the line that raises the most eyebrows amongst Protestants. How can we be Protestants and say that we believe in a Catholic church? In some Lutheran congregations, they reword the apostles and the Nicene Creed, replacing the word Catholic with the word Christian. They say, I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. But that change isn't really necessary because in the creeds, the word Catholic simply means universal. It comes from two Greek words, kata, with regard to, and holos, the whole, to say that the church is Catholic is to say that it is a whole. It's never just a part. There are congregations in many places. But when we talk about the church, we mean all of those congregations taken together. The New Testament contains 21 letters. Some of those letters were written to specific individuals. Philemon, Titus, Timothy... Some were written to specific congregations or clusters of congregations, 
Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians. And some were written to the whole church, the Catholic church, the universal church. This latter group of letters is called the general epistles or the Catholic epistles. They include James, 1st and 2nd Peter, and the three Johns and Jude. The letter of James, for example, is addressed to, quote, the twelve tribes in the diaspora. First Peter is addressed to, quote, the elect exiles of the diaspora in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And Second Peter is addressed very generally to, quote, those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. All of these congregations together form the church. The church is a whole. The church is Catholic. And as Christians who happen to worship in our little corner of the world, in our own little style, using the little traditions that we have inherited, we have to be very careful about not confusing our local church with the universal church. Our congregation is part of something much bigger than itself. And that universal church, that Catholic church, goes about its business in all kinds of languages, in all kinds of buildings, wearing all kinds of clothes, and playing all kinds of music. The church is Catholic. And fourth, the church is apostolic. This fourth point, as it turns out, is the most important point because it guarantees the other three points. The church is one because it's apostolic. The church is holy because it's apostolic. The church is Catholic because it's apostolic. What does it mean to say that the church is apostolic? It means that it stands on the teachings of the apostles. Last week we heard Jesus' prayer for his disciples. He prayed that prayer on the night of the Last Supper in just a few short weeks after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, after the Holy Spirit falls on them on the day of Pentecost, those disciples, those students of Jesus, will become the apostles of Jesus, the messengers of Jesus, the ambassadors of Jesus. After three years as disciples, after three years of studying with Jesus... They will then go out into the world to teach and to preach the gospel. And they will make disciples of their own and they will baptize them and they will teach them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. After praying for the disciples, the soon-to-be apostles, in verse 20, Jesus then prays, I do not ask for these only, for the disciples but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That is to say, all of the people who will become Christians because of the preaching and the teaching of the apostles. What does Jesus ask for these two groups? What is it that Jesus wants for these two groups of people? The disciples and the people who will believe because of the disciples. He says, I ask that they all may be one. Jesus prayed that we, the universal church, would be one with the apostles. 
The oneness, the unity of the church doesn't only mean that as a congregation we share a common bond with each other and with Christians around the globe. It also means that we are one with the apostles. Did you ever think about that? Did you ever think that you're one with Peter? That you're one with Paul? That you're one with Thomas? That you're one with John? That's what Jesus prayed for. This congregation is full of people who love each other, full of people who have a strong and trusting bond with each other. The people in this church do a good job of sticking together, of supporting each other, of putting up with and forgiving each other when we mess up. This unity in love is part of what makes the Christian life so sweet. But in John 17, 20, When Jesus prays for the unity of the apostles and the people who come to Jesus through the preaching of the apostles, Jesus isn't just talking about the unity of love. He's talking about the unity of doctrine. Jesus wants His church to be one, to be unified, because it holds to the word, to the teaching of the apostles. D.A. Carson in his commentary on this verse says, quote, It is a unity predicated on adherence to the revelation the Father mediated to the first disciples through the Son. The revelation they accepted and then passed on. Through Jesus Christ, God the Father reveals the saving truth to the apostles. The apostles receive that revelation in faith and they then pass it on to their own disciples. The church is apostolic because it's built on the teaching and the preaching of the apostles. The church is evergreen. The church is eternally young. The church is constantly changing and reforming itself. But the church proclaims an unchanging doctrine handed down from generation to generation from the time of the apostles. We see this from the very beginning. We see it even in New Testament times. In 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14, the apostle Paul speaking to his younger protege, Timothy, who will then become an apostle in his own right, he says to Timothy, what you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. The apostolic message is the pattern of sound teaching. It is the good deposit entrusted to you. Timothy's job is not to change or to add to or to subtract from that pattern of sound teaching, that good deposit. His job is to pass it on faithfully to the next generation of believers. In 1 Corinthians 11.23, at the beginning of what we call the words of institution, those are the words that I speak Uh, as we are preparing to take the Lord's Supper, the Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, and you know the rest of it. Paul isn't creating a new gospel. Paul isn't adding to or subtracting from the old gospel. Paul is just passing on to us what he received from the Lord. That's what makes him an apostle. 
And that's what makes the church that he helped build apostolic. The church is apostolic. On the night of the Last Supper, Jesus is less than 24 hours away from his own execution. He prays for himself. He prays for the 11 disciples. And then he prays for us. His final public words before he's arrested, he prays for us. He prays to God that we, the disciples of his disciples, he prays that we, the people who will believe in him because we believe in the teaching of the men that he taught, he prays that we might be one, united, undivided, because we stand upon one united and undivided gospel. Where do we find that gospel? This is the sum of the teaching of the apostles. I'm perplexed when I hear people say, I like Jesus, but I'm not so crazy about Paul. We wouldn't even know the name Jesus if it weren't for Paul. I'm perplexed when I hear people say, just give me the Sermon on the Mount, but don't bother me with all of that apostolic teaching. The Sermon on the Mount would be lost to history if it had not been for the testimony of the apostles. Scripture is a unified whole. It comes as a package. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is guarded for us by God's providence. It contains everything that we need to know concerning God and what duties God requires of us. Since January, Sunday by Sunday, we have been carefully working our way through the Gospel of John. This first century apostolic witness to Jesus to his life and to his teachings, it was written for us by John, one of the one of the twelve. Why do we study this document so carefully, so lovingly? We treasure this document because it contains the true teachings of Jesus. Because it was brought to us by a man, a fisherman named John who received that truth from the very lips of our Master. Jesus was able to read and to write, but for some reason He chose not to write anything to us. Instead, He trusted His teaching to the apostles, to men like John and Peter and Paul and Thomas. And today, you and I believe in Jesus to the saving of our eternal souls because of the authentic and reliable witness of these men. Because of what they taught us. Because of that deposit of faith that they passed on generation after generation. We have been saved. And we've been made part of a church which is one, which is holy, which is Catholic, which is apostolic. To the glory of Christ, who is the head of the church and reigns forever and ever. Amen.
Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you loved John. You loved him in a special way. And we love him too. And you loved us by loving him. We pray this day that the words of John, that this gospel that you caused to be written, that you caused to be preserved, we pray that it would be the true word of God. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand now.